Let's open our Bibles to Matthew and chapter 18. The title is Sacrificial Rescue, which uh, is blanketing verses 10 through 20. Uh, Our section for preaching is 10 to 14, so we can all breathe easy. So we like to go down deep and stay there, but... um, But the whole theme of rescue is found throughout these verses, these 10 verses, as two units that tie together really beautifully if you read them that way. The idea of sacrificial rescue is uh, a gospel theme. We've all been rescued. We just sang of being rescued. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. That's rescue. And rescue is a... It's a value in the kingdom of God. It's a jewel in the crown of the gospel. We've all been rescued. There was an intervention that took place. We were headed one way and God intervened. He headed us off at the path, um, the pass, even if we were young and converted young, it was still an intervention. If you were saved young, you were spared from being out of the control of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's intervention in our life is initial, where we are saved and brought to life, born again, whether young, teenager, middle-aged, older, doesn't matter. We're born again, we're brought to life, and then we are under the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this initial rescue becomes an ongoing rescue ministry in our lives where God keeps bringing us back. And we're going to find this picture of a loving shepherd who continues to keep, he saved us, but he keeps us and watches over us as the rescuing shepherd. Verses 15 through 20 speak of a brother-to-brother rescue. God rescues us as, his, as our shepherd, but we rescue each other by God's power and um, with God's power in our lives. We're rescuing each other in a, a ministry of restoration all the time as we call each other out and call each other back to faithfulness. With that in mind, let me just read our text, verses 10 through 20 of Matthew 18. See that... You do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if 
two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's the section of rescue. This story is a story that applies to all of us. And I think that is an important thing to embrace as you look at all of what Jesus is talking about. He's been talking in terms of values of the kingdom, values that apply to each one of us, Christ-like humility, verses 1 to 6, or childlike humility, radical amputation, being willing to cut sin out of your life because he wants you to do that. He is calling us to be warned of allowing for sin to have its ongoing effect in our life, verses 7 to 9. Sacrificial rescue, we're talking about that today. And then unconditional forgiveness, verses 21 to 35. This is uh, the value of being soft-hearted towards people that are offensive. So we're to be humble. We're to deal with our sin. We're to revel in the fact that we've been rescued. We're, we're to go on a rescue mission within the church for each other. That's going to be verses 15 to 20, kind of a part one, part two. Just if you're framing this up, I want you to get a good framework for what's here. And then lastly, being soft-hearted and forgiving of each other in the church, no matter what. This is what Christ values. And this all comes from the fact that we've been rescued in the first place. Colossians 1, 11 to 13 says he's delivered us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been put into a different kingdom. We were darkness. We were blind. We were empty. We were helpless. We were under a domain of darkness. Think of Satan as the king of darkness. It's where we were, and God plucked us out of that kingdom and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transfer your membership into the kingdom of my beloved son. And so now we need to value what he values as part of his king's story and king's family. And we are not outside, we are inside this kingdom. God pursued you to be in his kingdom. He rescued you to be in his kingdom. John 4, 23 is where Jesus said to the woman at the well, the father is seeking such people to worship him. He sought you out as the hound of heaven and brought you inside, inside, not just to be inside and maybe one day, one day be outside, but to be inside and to be assured that you will stay inside. You're inside for keeps. Kingdom membership is permanent. It is forever, here and for eternity. The rescue that is portrayed here in verses 10 through 14 is a rescue story that is earthy. It's childlike in its telling. It's easy to grasp. It's down to earth. And it is to make a very clear point, and that is that God not only saves you as a rescue, but he keeps you with ongoing rescues, if I can say it that way. He keeps pulling you back. 
No matter if you wander away, he keeps pulling you back and pulling you close to himself. This is important in the context of what he's describing as new Christians in the church, little ones, little ones. Again, verse four, you're to humble yourself as a child. And then in verse five, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. There's this child language. And then verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, who believes in me, causes them to sin, they would be uh, really someone that should be condemned to judgment. There's concern for little ones here. Verse 10, don't despise little ones. And then verse 14, it's not the Father's will that any little one should perish. All of this is the context for understanding your kingdom membership. Kingdom membership means you are one of God's children. And in particular, he's talking about little ones here that he is protecting in their early stages of Christian development. I don't know if you remember your earliest memory with any sort of vividness. I kind of do. One of my earliest memories was being in the nursery at my church. And uh, it wasn't a bad memory. It just was a, a an event for me to be that little and with a bunch of other little ones and crawling around. Well, I didn't know how well I was being taken care of in my family at that time. Food, clothing, shelter, provision, protection from myself as a little kid, but I was also raised in a Christian home. But looking back on that gift, I'm more and more grateful for how I was cared for and that love that was given to me. I was welcomed because I was part of the family. And in the same way, you can look back at your own Christian experience and God welcomed you into his family and he brought you in and he has kept you in there with safekeeping as God's little one. You're his little one all the way to heaven. And the beauty of this text is to see that He's talking about this protection and this saving and keeping mission in your life in the context of you fighting your own sin. Verses seven to nine is that call to cut off anything in your life that is a sin pattern, plaguing you, giving you guilt. And he's talking to new Christians and saying that you're supposed to deal with sin on a heart level. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Arm is causing you to sin. Foot, where you're going, is causing you to sin. Cut it off. Change things in your life through repenting. What is all of that? Well, all of that is in the context of God saying, I am your shepherd and you don't have to fight your own sin all by yourself. I'm with you. Nothing's going to separate me from you. You can run the marathon race of your Christian experience, and I will run alongside you. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that we run a race of endurance all the way to Jesus, and that it also says there's a cloud of witnesses. In other words, it's as if you're running in a stadium arena, like the Big C tournament that just happened here in Anchorage. You know, people are cheering you on, and, and it's as if all the Christians that have gone before you are saying, you can do it, you can do it. And that's God's love in your life. Christian 
Living is hard. I know that personally. I'm thankful to be in the Word of God in preparation every week for this moment. But I need this sermon like you need this sermon. I need the Word of God like you need the Word of God. We have to eat and, and be nourished so we can grow and go at it another week. But the point of this passage is that you don't have to live the Christian life alone or by yourself. You have a shepherd who not only saved you, he doesn't leave you alone. As you wander away, he will guide you back. That's an incredible encouragement. Christian living is observable. A Christian will not always be unfruitful or have a fruit that's stagnant, but we will stumble and we need God's grace that doesn't abandon us as we try to grow. So if you're taking notes uh, under this section of verses 10 to 14, um, there are, well, it's actually, I'm outlining 10 through 20. So this is a double outline, but we're only going to cover the first half of it. It's uh, God's two acts of rescue. The first act is verses 10 to 14. Two acts of rescue. The first is 10 to 14. So it's sort of a story-like sermon. It begins in verse 10 with a warning. God's warning for the tempters. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Don't despise little ones. Or despise could be uh, translated or applied as shunning. Don't shun or dismiss little ones. Don't look down upon them. Don't act like they are unimportant within the body of Christ. Maybe on a deeper level, it's the idea of don't, don't, Lead them into sin by having a poor example in front of them. Don't be the wrong kind of peer pressure within the body of Christ. Don't do that. Why? Because God's watch care is that powerful over that little one. And the picture of heaven here is the face of God and, and before his angels, where his angels are looking for any difference of countenance from God the Father, who if he is concerned at all for one of his little ones, he will dispense immediately a search and rescue team from heaven to intervene and help that little one out. You say, what does that look like? I guess we could do a study on where angels make appearances throughout the Old Testament or around the gospel events, but... Really, my quick answer to what that looks like, where an angel or an angelic search and rescue team is bringing people back um, from wandering away, I have no idea what that looks like at all. And I think that's the point. Heaven's invisible. God is invisible to us. We can see that with our mind's eye using sanctified creativity in our own mind to think about heaven and God's face and angels and being dispatched to help people. But I think it's more important to understand that as Jesus taught this, he illustrated it with something that's very visible and very understandable in terms of a shepherd and sheep. He's no doubt out there in the flock and, or out there in the fields, and he's looking with his disciples who are his spiritual sheep and saying, look at that shepherd over there with his flock of 100 sheep and how that shepherd cares for them and one that might stray away. What you have is a shepherd like that. You have a shepherd who sent his son as a sacrifice, who became a sin-conquering friend, a high priest, 
and a brotherly companion to you to help you in your Christian walk and in your journey. Oh, you might have had parents who loved you. You might have, you might have a sibling that loves you. You might have a friend that loves you personally. You might feel physical love from hugs and companionship. But eventually, sin is going to interrupt that relationship, right? Something is going to wax and wane within a human relationship. We know that to be true. But with God, because he is without sin and has this fierce love for you, nothing's going to interrupt that. Our sin might cause some turbulence, but his overriding shepherding love is always going to be there for you to pull you back in. God created you. He foreknew you. He planned for you to become a believer. And at some point in your life as a believer, it happened. It happened. But that initial experience is not where God just leaves you alone. He's bringing you to completion. And part of that process is what he's doing in your life. Yeah, it's on us to deal with our sin, to be warned of eternal hell, to examine ourselves, to make sure we're real Christians, because if we are, we're not going to hell. But in light of that, to do battle against our own sin, to starve things out of our life and say, Jesus is better. But at the same time, recognize that you are a little child and God's child, and he's going to keep you near. New converts in the family of God are what are on God's mind, on Jesus's mind here as he teaches. And he's saying that God is your ultimate parent the ultimate parent who's always there and always watching. So do not despise his parenting. Don't look down on this watch care. Don't shun. He's not talking about the intellectually elite in the church. He's not talking about those who are financially superior in the church. He's not talking about those who are winsome or good looking within the church. Those things might be part of your life, but the true reality is that God is your parent. What could go wrong in the church? I just want to allude to something. I'm going to pick up a bit of Romans tonight in my missions message. Just look at Romans 16, if you will, the, the last chapter of the book of Romans. Out of all that Paul could have said at the end of Romans, he says this. He gives a strong warning in the final chapter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord, G our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Watch out for those people. So little new believers in the church have to watch out for their own sin and they have to watch out for those who could be deceivers even within the church. He gives that kind of warning to not be that kind of person to them. Why? Because God's attentiveness is real. It's God's care for you as his child is as real as heaven is and it's as real as God is and it's as real as God's love is. He's the rescuer. But what does this look like? Let's bring heaven down to earth and look at verse 12. 
which is not a misprint in your Bible. It's just the earliest manuscript didn't include what some Bibles include as verse 11. So your verse probably, your next one is 12. (laughs) That's what's happening. Just thought I would say that. But this is the story that God makes real to us, his love through. And he begins with a rhetorical question, verse 12. What do you think? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, what, or does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? What do you think about this? What do you think about heaven? What does that look like? Well, it looks like a shepherd. Now, this could be a shepherd who's like a shepherd who owns the hundred sheep, or is the shepherd just responsible for a hundred sheep? But first and foremost, this is not a story about being responsible or a story about the wealth that you are the steward of. A hundred sheep might mean that this is a wealthy sheep owner. It may or may not. I'm not all the way sure, but. The idea here is not one of financial stewardship. Like, oh, I'm a counter, I'm a bean counter. One sheep's gone away, so I really feel responsible to get that one sheep. That's not the issue. The issue here is the reflexive love that the shepherd has for even a sheep, even if he still has 99. That's the math computation. I've got 99 still, but the one leaving matters to me. I'm going after that animal. I'm going after that wandering Sheep, that's stray. To stray here is um, where we get the word planet in our English language. It's planao. And you think of a planet that's uh, kind of swirling in the solar system, you know, spinning around in, in outer space. And, and that's the idea that's a verbalized picture of someone who's wandering around, wandering away from the faith. A lot of people do that. They might not be in open defiance or outright rebellion against the Lord. They might not know that. Surely they are morally responsible for their choices. But at the same time, someone who is wandering away is just in a drift pattern away from the Lord, away from the things of God, away from Christian friendships, is now skipping church pretty regularly, not coming under the accountability of God's word, allowing for peer pressure or what have you to just seduce a person into a wrong way of thinking, a wrong lifestyle, where they suddenly wake up and they go, where am I? I've put myself outside of the protection of the flock, outside of the protection of the herd, and I am sitting here very, very vulnerable as prey where enemies can attack. That's a person who has wandered away it said a man had a hundred sheep. One of them has gone astray. One of them has wandered off. I'm, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm counting um, 98, 99. Uh, somebody's gone. They're in the proverbial valley of the shadow of death. It's a person who, in a valley, you are vulnerable to enemies. You're walking in a place where they can just jump you in the shadows. Or you're out in the field, all out in the open and exposed with no brush or no protection around you whatsoever. It's the idea that a shepherd needs to intervene and help this wandering sheep. What does someone do if they're in this situation? Maybe you've been there before where you kind of like regress. Where you go back to the old ways of life, the former manner of life. You start doing again the things that you never thought you would do. You've returned to your old ways, your old manner of thinking. What do you do? Well, you might begin to muse in your mind about things like this. 
I feel like suddenly I'm ensnared in a cage and I'm in the bars of guilt and I cannot get out of this cage. I'm stuck inside. I'm in despair. Maybe you say something like this. Shouldn't I have known better than to put myself back in this situation or back within these relationships? I'm a new creature in Christ. You might say, what have I done? What have I done? I'm outside of the pale of God's love. God's love is not big enough to take me back because I found life. I found Jesus. I, was, I had Christian friends and now suddenly I'm acting like this. Think of Peter denying the Lord three times. Think of David with Bathsheba. Those are just two of the examples. I mean, examples are pervasive in scripture where people walk away, where they drift where they drift, losing their first love, the church of Ephesus. How could I ever face the family of God again? How could I ever come back? How could I face my own physical family that's watched what I've done? They would never think I would do something like that. Well, don't be so sure. Well, all of these ponderings are misguided in light of what Jesus promises here, you have a shepherd and you have a shepherd who's going to pursue you whether you know it or not. You're this wandering planet, you're this straying sheep and the shepherd is hunting you down, calling out, looking for you, wanting to bring you back. He's left the 99 up in the mountains, up in the safety of their own herd, but his valuation is it's worth the sacrifice to leave the herd there and go for the one. That's where I'm getting the word sacrifice here. Because in this context, the little one or the straying sheep is a picture of a new believer who's already in the flock, who's in the kingdom of God, who just needs to be brought back near to the Lord's safekeeping again. Think of Jesus saying, I will lose none of them. You're safe in my hand. This is his active love on your behalf to keep bringing you back. It's intuitional for the shepherd to do this. This rescue is automatic. It's reflexive. It's not something that took the shepherd a long time to calculate. It's hardwired into who he is by character. When temptation comes, for every Christian, there is a way of escape. And if you'll look, you might look with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. We don't have time to unpack all of that. But the context of 1 Corinthians is where Paul is um, reflecting back, thinking back of the children of Israel, the wandering wilderness children who were struggling with their own sin as they were journeying to the promised land. It's a picture of the Christian life where you're journeying through the ebbs and flows of the Christian experience trying to get to the promised land. And you had witnesses of um, God's Shekinah glory to for them to follow and to go through the Red Sea and to eat of the spiritual food, the manna from heaven, to drink from the rock that was the provision of water, which is a picture of Christ, verse 4. And nevertheless, with all of this blessing, God wasn't pleased with them because they stood up in pride and they had to be overthrown in the wilderness for their sin. This is an example for us of what not to do. Don't harden your heart. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as, as some of them were. 
Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 23,000, that tribe of Korah that fell. We must not put Christ to the test. Verse 9, they were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did that were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you can prop yourself up in your own pride, and your own strength, be warned against doing that. Now, for the believer, here is the lesson. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. These sin things, these sinful temptation dynamics that were happening to the wandering wilderness children for the 40 years of their wanderings, those same kinds of idolatrous sins reside in all of our hearts today. And they're common to all of us. Straying is common to all of us. Says no temptation is overtaking you. It's not common. It's in common with all of us. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God's the rescuing shepherd. He's put enough in you for you to fight through the sin of temptation. But with the temptation, listen to this. He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I've heard it compared the way of escape not to the trap door like in the Indiana Jones scene where the walls are closing in and you have a way out. It's not a quick way out. It's an endurance run that you run and race through the trial. So the pressure, the difficulty, the um, trial of your life, the sins of your life. Paul is saying that there's a way of escape. There's a pathway back home. Let's say it that way. That you may be able to endure it. It's the endurance race back home. There's a road to recovery that you can journey down now. By God's grace. So again, a straying sheep is brought back and pursued and brought back. God will dig you out of your stagnation if you'll allow him. And when he does, guess what? Even though heaven is invisible, God is invisible, and his love is something that we know by faith, You feel it and see it in profound ways like you've never seen it before. If you've ever been rescued, intervened upon, called back by the Lord, by his church, by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, by Bible that's been brought to your mind where you just go, ah, I'm the prodigal son, I'm coming to my senses and I'm returning home. You know heaven has come to earth in your own life and your own experience. You know that is incomparable in terms of the love that you can feel from a parent. Your heavenly parent loves you. He's dispatched his angels to bring you back. It's heaven to earth. It's a shepherd's love. And you're happy, but you're not the only one that's happy. Guess what? When you come back, God is happy. How do we see this? Well, this is point three, God's joy over the rescue. There's a warning, and then there's God's sacrificial rescue. But there's joy When you're rescued, verse 13, and if he finds it, if he finds the sheep, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray. You say, doesn't he love the flock? Why is he giving all of his attention to the one? It's because this is the gospel story. 
You're redeemed initially and saved, but he keeps you. It's that saving, keeping, helping, and guiding love that is upon you. That's also the story of the gospel. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that is this keeping, saving, loving reach. You think you're beyond God's love. You think you've disqualified yourself from being loved. You feel like you have fallen back to your former way of life. And then there is this rescuing, keeping grace that God extends to you. It's grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. It's the redemption story over and over and over again. The shepherd that pursues and pursues and pursues the lost sheep, which are the little ones. He finds the sheep and poetically, he rejoices over it more than the 99. It's incredible joy. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. God's joy over Israel. He says, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He'll sing a song of praise over you. It says in another place in the Gospels that in heaven, there's more joy over one who repents, more joy in heaven over one who repents than all other things. I mean, it's an amazing party that happens in heaven over someone who repents. We believe that God is immutable and changing. He's this rock, the solid rock of salvation in our lives. He is, he is the sovereign Lord of our lives. When all of life is spinning and chaotic and swirling like a storm out there, God is our stability. But to have the full picture of God, you have to understand him as both sovereign and near. Both this sovereign, immovable, immutable, unchangeable being who also is alive within your life, within your heart, within your circumstances, within your rescue. And you stray away like a straying planet or a straying sheep and he brings you back as a loving shepherd. It's the eminence of God. God is transcendent and, and great big outside of time and space and he's near the eminence of God means that he's knowable, perceivable, graspable. Jesus is God incarnate, and therefore he was eminent in the first century among those who knew him, perceived him, or experienced him. You could experience him when he was here physically with all five senses. And yet in our heart, we know he's near. He promised in his great commission, I'll be with you always. He promised to Moses I will be with you. Joshua 1.9, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That was Joshua's commission to take over for Moses. I will be with you. It's repeated to all Christians. Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't trust money. Be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't let money be your idol. Why? Because God is with you. God is near to you. This is the eminence of God. He cares for you, loves you, knows you. If you've ever been lost, you know the joy of being found. Especially as a child, if you ever had a traumatic time where you're just like, I don't know where my parents are or where my house is or which way out. If you're like me who has no sense of direction and GPS isn't working, could experience lostness. I'm like that. Seriously, literally, it's true. 
sure technology helps a lot. Parenting, too, is one of those um, crazy things that where you have, if you have six kids like we had and have, um, but when they were little kids, it was all six at once in our house, and it was easy to lose track of one of them. And one time, uh, more than on one occasion, it was like, where is this kid or that? And my youngest kid, um, when he was a little boy, um, you know, you have all the buzz of our household, and suddenly I couldn't find our youngest, and our youngest was nowhere to be found. So I'm running and doing laps around my house, calling out to my kid, where are you, where are you? You know, just nowhere to be found. Randy, Pastor Randy came by for some reason just to say hi or whatever, to see me in a complete terror and panic. And uh, he's going, hey, just what's the deal? And we found Owen behind the couch asleep, (laughs) fast asleep. Another time after church, uh, you know, it was an exhausting day, preached a couple times, went, went to the backyard, and, and we had put the twins and, and Owen in the backyard, and they're just uh, running around, climbing trees and all of this. We have a fenced-in backyard, our other house that we had before this one. Put them back there, and it was all too quiet. What's wrong? What's happened? Where are the kids? And one of my kids had pulled out the little stake, opened the backyard up, and the kids were gone. So... The twins went one way down the neighborhood, and um, Owen was, you know, just basically a shirt and, you know, just just little kid kind of toddling around, and he had made his way almost to uh, out of our neighborhood to Lake Otis. And so by the time I saw it, I'm running to grab him, and two trucks had stopped right there just to, like, kind of hold him off, and men were, like, approaching him just to... you know, corral him. And I'm in a hoodie sweatshirt going, oh yeah, I'm a competent parent. Hey, yeah, this is my kid. We can verify that. Great. You're happy when you have a successful rescue. We were outside of heaven. Then we were put inside of heaven's kingdom. But that doesn't mean that we won't at times stray away. But the comfort is knowing God as shepherd brings you back. There's a commitment that God makes in Christ's teaching here in verse 14. Look at it. It says, so it is not the will of my father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is God's will to keep you. It's incredible. God's will is for you to be rescued and to stay rescued. To the logical mind, this can bring confusion. Because you might say, well, aren't we talking about someone who's already saved? And now he's bringing up someone not perishing. Well, perishing can be interpreted one of two ways in John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. It's talking about salvation. Here, uh, according to the context, and I verified it with a particular study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, it says, you know, perish can also be translated as not um, being spiritually devastated. It's God's will that you will not fall into spiritual devastation. And the context, again, is little ones who are already saved. And so it's God's will who is in heaven. This is from heaven's vantage point. It's applied through the shepherd going for a sheep. We can understand it that way. It's tangible. It's practical. Not one of these little ones should perish. 
He's not going to allow a believer just to fall away in spiritual devastation. It's going to bring him back. That's why I don't lose hope on people who are professing Christians this side of heaven. God, and I, I put it this way, God puts you in your child's life if you're worried about your child. God puts you in your spouse's life if you're worried about your spouse's salvation or, or worried about whether they're going to repent of their sin and come back um, to a decided faithfulness in, in Christian living. God puts you as accountability in their life. So why did he do that? He did that for his purposes. We're going to learn about that more and more next week with spiritual restoration, brother to brother. The accountability of God's love is, is real and is powerful. I was thinking about this just uh, in my own mind now. I have a cousin one time who had a massive rescue story. Um, he, he's an FBI agent and kind of a a tenured professional who now has turned um, to a full-time pastor and church planner. He told me the story about he and his wife um, who, when they, I think they were newlyweds or engaged, but they were out on a, um, a boat uh, off the coast of the East Coast and off the coast of North Carolina and not too far out from shore. And it was, you know, sort of a sailboat with a rudder. And, and this guy's a competent guy, but the rudder broke. The rudder broke or, or the keel or something went terribly wrong, but they couldn't steer the boat anymore. And so they were just on the boat and they were hoping that they would be rescued, that they'd be seen. It was evening, it's getting later and later and they're drifting farther and farther away. And they did what you're never supposed to do. They abandoned ship. They tried to swim back and they couldn't make it back. And the ship, uh, their boat went away from them and, and they're just there. And at their last moment, they've been treading water and he's holding her up. They have life jackets on, but it was just sort of over. And at the last moment, um, he said, we're gonna pray one more time that we'd be rescued. Lord, please rescue us. Please save us. And at that moment, a boat, a fishing expedition um, boat went right, came up right over the horizon and basically like almost ran them over. What are you doing out here? It's amazing. And they were pulled to safety. God is with us. God is our rescue. You say, why doesn't God rescue everyone if he can? Why would he leave some to their own Sin. Ezekiel 33 talks about God not having the pleasure in the death of the wicked. Titus 2.11 brings salvation to all people. Second Peter 3.9, God is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's patient toward all, not wishing that any should perish. You have the tears of Jeremiah, the tears of Jesus over Jerusalem. Why doesn't he, if, he, if he's the author of salvation, why doesn't he save and keep everyone? We don't know. But two things can be true about God at the same time, both his grace, mercy, love, and saving ability, and his justice, and his wrath, and his clear judgment on sin. And so when people are willing to, unwilling to repent, God is also willing to pass over them in reprobation and leave people in their sin. And the Bible clearly teaches that, but we ultimately have to put our hand over our mouth and like Job say, we, we don't understand all of who God is and why he acts the way he does. In the image of God, though, we are made in a way where we can both love people, extend the gospel to people, be gracious to people, welcome people, pursue people, and at the same time, hold them accountable that if they don't repent, the Bible says they will go to eternal hell. And in the same way, a judge can say, 
I'm giving you a verdict of guilt and you have to go to jail for the rest of your life or you have to go to capital punishment for what you've done. And he can adjudicate that in one breath and at the same time be his heart be breaking for that person for their sin at the same time. And God is that way. God's will is for all to be saved, but he allows for people who are unrepentant to be judged and condemned. That's how the Bible teaches us God. But with that as a backdrop, to understand that God rescued you, he rescued me, and he keeps us within that rescue our whole lifetime until we go to heaven. That's amazing. He saved you, and he keeps you. He is the divine shepherd. He is the ultimate parent. He has been called the hound of heaven. He's the pursuant lover of our souls. If you've strayed in your sin, come back. If, you, if you're sitting in your sin right now, secretly, come back. You heard last week we're supposed to cut it out. Repent of your sin. The shepherd is pursuing you. Perhaps he's pursuing you through the word of God right now. Come back to him. Hear his voice. The call of the shepherd will be heard by his sheep. Come back to him. Because he loves you. He's pursuing you. As he has saved you, he will keep you.